Over the last couple of weeks, we started a brand new series entitled Seven Letters. And what we've been studying are the words of Jesus as dictated to the Apostle John to seven churches that were in Asia Minor. Minor. Oh, my God. I just, the hood just came out of me there for a moment. <laughs> they were from Asia Minor, right? That was more proper. <laughs> um, but listen, uh, it's interesting because where these churches were situated and how they were situated actually gave them the ability to be the most influential force that God could use in that region. And that's important because whether you realize it or not, God has situated you in places among people, amongst circumstances where God wants you to bring influence. Amen? And so there's something that God wants to do, not just back then, but today. Now, the thing about these churches is that they were enduring great pressures from without, but also from within. So much so that these pressures posed a great threat to their faith, their morals, their values, and their influence as the church of Jesus Christ. Now, look, we do not live in a world unlike them. See... Because there are parallels to what they were going through and the realities of what we face today as the people of God, we must consider the words of Jesus to them as instruction for us as well. You know, oftentimes we can read the Bible and go, yeah, that's good for them. No, it's good for you and me. Amen? Amen. So, uh, the, these letters provide us instruction that helps us to withstand the pressures that come against our beliefs and so that we can be influencers in this world as opposed to being influenced. So today I'd like to talk to you on the topic, the compromising church. The compromising church. We've looked at a few churches already. Today we're going to be looking at a church that was situated in a place called Pergamum. You're going to see why I refer to them as the compromising church. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 12. Starting with the words of Jesus, it says this, And to the angel of the church... In Pergamum, right. The angel there that he's referring to is the pastor. See, the pastor is not exclusive from what's happening amongst the people. That's good news, right? And just so you know, I, I take the word just as seriously as you do, right? So he says to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Remember that term. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful uh, witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. He says, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches." To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And so this church 
was situated in the midst of a city called Pergamum. And I'm going to give you some background. Uh, I pull a lot of these resources from writings of Josephus, some biblical scholars. So you can, I, I encourage you, please don't take my word for it. I am not God. Go back to God. Go study. Dig into the word. You'll see uh, that there's so much more to this than what I'm giving you. But this city, this church was in a city called Pergamum. And this city was the crown jewel of its day in Asia Minor. Its magnificence exceeded that of any other city in this region as it was built as a mirror image of another city that was esteemed highly in those uh, before then, a place called Athens. And so this place, Athens, was considered to be the most sophisticated city in its time. So when they built Pergamum, they wanted to mirror that. And yet... Pergamum exceeded Athens in its architecture, its sculpture, its educational system, and so many other ways. And so though Pergamum was a beauty to behold indeed, it was amazing for its time. It was a dark and corrupt place at its core. It was a spiritually dark city with all kinds of temples that existed uh, for the advancement of idol worship. There, were, there was a continual practice of sacrifices. This went on 24-7. They, they say, uh, scholars say that when you would walk to Pergamum, that you could see the smoke billowing up into the sky all day, all night long. And it was there that the largest of all temples existed with a golden altar to the pagan god Zeus. This altar, this temple was deemed in the ancient world one of the seven wonders. There are portions of it that still remain in this region. This is now in Turkey. And this was the central haven and stronghold for the deepest and darkest demonic activity and wickedness. So strong was the wickedness in this place that Jesus says herein, in, in Revelations 2, that this is where the throne of Satan was situated. The word throne there in the Greeks is the Greek word thronos. And here's what it alludes to. It denotes a chair in a house reserved for the head of the home. It's, it's reserved for the one who has supreme authority and even is referred to as Lord of his home. It's for one who wielded authority in great measure. In other words, it was from this place that all demonic act, act, uh, authority and activity spread into, this, into the region of Asia Minor. But it was also there that God placed a church. See, Satan's seat had been established here for generations. And it had gone uncontested until the church was born in Pergamum. And so when the church of Pergamum was established, it was truly powerful. These believers dared to go where no other group of believers had ever dared to go up until this point. And they began to push back against the spiritual forces of darkness at work in this region. Now, despite their efforts, this church could, could not avoid the evil going on around them. Thus, these believers had to learn how to resist it, face it, and walk in the power of God that backed them. So why do I share this with you? Because we live in a dark age, ladies and gentlemen. 
Don't be fooled by, that, by everything that people tell you and what people show you and, and how good they want to make things appear. There are spiritual forces at work. The problems that we face are not the, the issues of men. The problems that we face are not the people that contest against us. The problems that we face are not so much just the pressures applied that come in contradiction to our faith. The real issue that we have is that we don't know how to fight against the root. And now listen, I'm not saying that you don't know how to fight, but that's where we go wrong when it goes wrong. All right? And so these conditions created great problems for the believers in Pergamum as they were viciously persecuted. They were hated and they underwent much turmoil as a result of their unwillingness to bend to the pressures imposed upon them. And eventually some of the believers there and some of the leaders among the church there began to follow pagan ways and beliefs that led to compromise. Now, what's interesting is this. This is just me being a Bible geek because I, I, I dig in like this, so I hope I don't bore you. But if you notice when uh, Jesus starts addressing the church of Pergamon, he says, he, I am the one who holds the, the, a sharp double-edged sword. Jesus is literally asserting his authority above the one who had authority in Pergamon. In Pergamon, there was a man who was known as the proconsul. He was like a governor. And so this was the man who was appointed by Rome to rule and to govern all the affairs in Asia Minor. And it's said that this proconsul would have a sword that he would use to, to determine uh, if people lived or died based on his judgment. So if he held it up, it meant you were spared. If he dropped it, it meant that you were sentenced to death. And here Jesus is saying, I am the one who holds a sharp double-edged sword. I am the one that will cut things down, cut things down according to the sword of my mouth. So I, the reason why I share that with you is because we can easily get moved by the pressures we see around us, by the things that come directly in opposition to our faith. But you must remember that there is one greater within you than he that is in the world. And so Jesus identifies in his letters how this began to happen, and we would be wise to learn from his words so that we do not end up living with compromise. Two things that Jesus uh, notes in, in this letter to the church of Pergamum is he refers to the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. I don't have much time to really dig into this, so I'm going to do my very best with the short amount of time that I have. But Balaam was a pagan priest in the Old, uh, Old Testament times. You'll find uh, uh, a recap of Balaam. It, it, the, the scriptures allude to Balaam in Numbers 23, 24, and 25. And so Balaam, according to the writings of uh, Jewish historian Josephus, was renowned for his skill as a diviner and a medium through which the spirit realm spoke. People sought this guy out. And in Numbers 23, it recounts how the pagan king Balak attempted to employ his skills to curse Israel. He wanted to bring war against them, but he wanted to have an upper hand on them. And so he seeks out Balaam, and he says, curse them. And the scriptures reveal in Numbers 23 through 25 that Balaam tried to, uh, no matter how many times Balaam tried, I think it was three times, he could not curse them. And so because he could not curse them, 
and all he could do was pronounce the blessing that was upon them, the same blessing that's upon you, Balaam does something underhanded. He says, I can't curse them, but I'll teach you how to get them to curse themselves. And so here's what happens. Here's what happens, right? Balaam, um, uh, uh, Balak, the, Balak and his people, you know, at the behest of Balaam, uh, set up a, a, uh, a, a feast. And there are women there who are dancing, you know, and they're, they're sexually enticing and they're naked and they're performing all these rituals and there's this feast being served. And the scripture says that the Israelites, the men of Israel, went up to this place and they sat there and they were enticed by what they saw. And as they were in, in, enthralled by what they saw, this feast of, of, of food that was sacrificed to pagan gods was served to them. And so they began to eat and partake and celebrate, which then led them to fornicate, to enter into sexual relations with these women as acts of pagan worship. And that day, it went really bad for Israel. And so I'll tell you why I share that with you because uh, Jesus was against this doctrine because he saw that it would lead his people to lower their standards as they were drawn by way of their eyes through sexual enticement that would lead them to be entrenched with beliefs and practices that would destroy them morally and bring about the destruction of the church in Pergamum. If you study Pergamum, if you see the, the practices here, a lot of what they did in pagan worship was sexual. It was enticing to the eyes. There were feasts. There were all type of things. And so these people began to follow after what they saw. Now, as I was reviewing my notes, I really felt the need to say this. So look, if the shoe fits, wear it. Don't wear it. Change it. But if it doesn't, then just... Heed the wisdom in God's word. Either way, we should yield to the wisdom of God's word. You know, it's interesting that the doctrine of Balaam is still at play today. We live in a world that is over-sexualized. Everything's over You can't, I mean, you can't look at lipstick without it being sexualized, right? And so this is happening, ladies and gentlemen, but let me just say something to you men and women. That there's a door that opens, that's open. And it's up to you to walk through it. And that's what you begin to do with your eyes. Be it porn. Be it pictures. Be as you're surfing the net. Be careful. Because it's directly tied to the work of the enemy. Don't open that door. Let me speak to you fellas for a moment. Be careful. The door you walk through. Because what you don't realize is that you're walking into a situation where Satan will snatch you. All right? That was free. Let's move right along. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans. This term Nicolaitan means to conquer and subdue the laity. And so there was a hidden agenda in this doctrine which was to conquer and subdue common people of society that served Christ. This was a heretical group. They taught that there was nothing wrong with serving Christ while participating in pagan practices for the sake of maintaining peace with your neighbors. These were people that sought to be an influence. 
they sought acceptance, but it came at the expense of being influenced and accepting the immoral ways of those among them. This was a doctrine as well of compromise. And you know what's interesting? If you dig into this, what you'll see is that a lot of the people that were drawn to the Nicolaitans were young people. They were young people. Now, I'm not saying anything against you young, you know, if you're like me, 25. You know, you got you to gotta, you gotta, you gotta hold your ground down. That was a joke. That was a lot funnier in my head. Anyway, let's move along. No, but listen closely. What's interesting is that this, this uh, doctrine of Nicolaitanism is still at work. And I want you to consider what Jesus said. I hate it. I hate it. This doctrine still prevails today and has seeped into the church by propagating the need to exist by way of truce with the world. You can be a Christian and be among them. I'm not saying that you're, you're to be a hermit, but what I'm saying is that there must be a difference in your choices. There must be a difference in your beliefs. There must be a difference about you that distinguishes you and brings light to dark places. And so there are some signs of this doctrine today in the church. Let me give you a few. No emphasis on holy living and separation from the world. It's all based on inclusiveness. Listen, we just want to make sure that we can include everyone. But is it at the expense of becoming like everyone? Right? There's no emphasis on doctrinal teaching of the Bible. It's all about remaining progressive. In other words, the Bible's used to motivate and inspire, but the Bible is not for any corrective purposes. It's looked to more so for principles to help and better yourself. Let me just tell you how to have your best life now. There's no emphasis on truth or absolute biblical authority. Do you know that studies show that most people do not believe that the Bible is completely the Word of God? That it's not absolute. Well, listen, if the word of God is not absolute in your life, then you will absolutely end up deceived. Absolutely. Right? And so there's no emphasis on truth or absolute biblical authority. It's all about an open-mindedness to other truths and therapeutic methods that we use to deter dependence upon God and his word all in the name of, hey, God wants you better. Another sign of it is that there's no emphasis on exclusive belief that Christ is the only way to heaven, to God. It's a tolerance of other religious beliefs and practices as a way of, of, of to, to right standing with God and for the purpose of being at peace with all. Listen, when Nicolaitanism is at work, doctrine is replaced with a pressure to produce social activity. Social justice and an agenda to appeal to the world uh, uh, takes place by making, by, by ensuring that we want to make them feel better. We want everybody to feel like they belong. It's teaching of biblical doctrine that is diminished and is replaced by watered down politically correct instruction. Can I just say this? And I love you. Whether you are here or you're watching online, my job is to give you the word. 
not my opinion. We have too many politically correct, socially correct Christians who have forgotten that their goal is to be biblically correct. Both of these doctrines have seeped into the church and have led many astray. And both of these doctrines still persist today. And let me remind you of, of the words of Jesus. I pray that it sounds an alarm for you. Jesus says, I hate it. I hate it. You know, compromise is a lot like Gatorade. Let me tell you what I mean. Here we have a bottle of Gatorade. All right, some of you, that's before your time, right? And I have an empty bottle. The thing about it is this. It reminds me of the people of Israel who were the people of God. They had the anointing of God, the calling of God, the power of God followed them wherever they went. These people walked in authority, but they, they lived less than that. With a, with a lesser understanding than that. And so there comes a point where they've just come out of, Israel, uh, out of Egypt, and they're now in the desert, and Moses, the scripture says in Exodus 32, goes up to the mountain to talk to God, to come back with some instruction for them. And while they're waiting for Moses, the scripture says that they began to become impatient. They said, this guy Moses is taking too long, and we want to worship. I'm paraphrasing. And so what did they do? They said, hey, Aaron, why don't you build us an altar, a God, that we might worship? And the scripture says that Aaron says to them, all right, give me your earrings, give me your gold, give me your stuff, and uh, I'll make you a God. And so he makes them a golden calf, and they begin to worship. You know what's the interesting thing about compromise? The enemy works by mimicry. Listen to what he does. He doesn't say, hey, I'm here to destroy your life. He says, look, I'm here to do the same thing that God wants to do in your life. It is God. It's good. It's great. It looks the same, it, it, it smells the same, it acts the same, but guess what? Once you begin to ingest it, like this glass cleaner, if you drink enough of it, you know what's going to happen? It will slowly begin to destroy you from the inside out. You know, listen, compromise doesn't happen overnight. It's... Slowly and steadily, we begin to ingest it. Anybody want to drink? No? No. You're smart. You're wise in that regard. So listen closely to what I'm saying to you. The allure of compromise is that you can avoid the persecution and pressures of this world and still be a Christian. I'm still a Christian. But, you know, I just want to love everybody. That's fine. Nothing wrong with loving people. Nothing against that. But if that love comes at the expense of you forsaking your love for Christ, there is a problem. There's a problem. And so compromise is a guarantee that you will lose your capacity to overcome the enemy 
in your life, you begin to compromise your faith. You begin to fit in. You begin to look and act and think and say and reflect what everybody else is saying. Everybody else believes this is right. Can I tell you that you need to consider, are you excluding God? Because compromise will lead you to leave Christ. I love Jesus. You know, for the person who's on the other end of that pendulum and saying, man, how did I get here? You know how it happened? Compromise. Slowly and steadily. Don't make that mistake. And so for the next couple of moments that I have here, I want to just leave you with three simple things to encourage your faith and call upon you and and, and myself to live without compromise. The first thing that I want to leave you with here is that if you don't understand your authority in Christ, you will compromise what you are authorized to do. I'm going to say that again. If you don't understand your authority in Christ, you will compromise what you are authorized to do. In every letter addressed by Christ in the book of Revelations to these churches in Asia Minor, it is important to understand and remember the context of who he is speaking to. Some of you are probably saying right now, duh, he's speaking to the church. Now, yes, that's true. But you got to understand that this word in the Greek for church, ekklesia, is not what you think it means. The word ekklesia in those days was a powerful word. Why? Because this Greek word was used as a governmental term. It describes a prestigious body of people like a senate separated from among the people for the purpose of determining laws, formulating policies, ruling in judicial matters, and setting the tone for society. So let me tell you something about who you are, Ecclesia. You are a people that are called out. You are a people that are called forth. You are a people that are selected. You are a people that are assembled to be God's representatives in every town, in every city, in every state. In every nation, you are a body called to make decisions that impact, affect, and influence, and set the atmosphere of every region you go to. God's intention is that we be a people that rise to a position of power and influence for the purpose of changing the world around us by revealing Christ. We are not intended, we are not called to be hidden in fear. We are not called to conform to the image of people around us. We are not called to be ruled by ungodly norms in this world. Let me ask you a question. What will you do when the laws of the land conflict with the laws of God's kingdom? Answer that question for yourself. Because if you ain't thinking about that now, you won't be ready when the time comes. Well, anyway, moving right along, let's get back to the love of Jesus. This is love. It's truth. Listen, the scriptures say that there came a time when Christ commissioned 
his 12 disciples, and he sent them out to heal the sick and cast out demons and raise the dead and function with authority. And then shortly thereafter, he commissions another 72 disciples, and he, he sends them out to do the same. But it's important to understand the power of their authority. Luke chapter 10 verse 5 says this, and when you enter a house, this is Jesus speaking, he says, first say peace to this house. That might not sound like much at surface level, but here's literally what Jesus is saying. Before you even go in there and declare the gospel, before you even go in there and pray, before you even go in there and lay hands, before you even go in there and cast out a demon, before you even go in there and be a light, Here's what I'm authorizing you to do. Deal with the, with the environment first and you speak to that house and you tell it what the word of God declares and you call the kingdoms of, of God and its authority and you stand in that. And then after you've done that, then walk in and then give them the gospel. You don't believe me? Look at Mark chapter 3, I believe it's verse 27. Jesus says this, he says, before you, you bind up, the, uh, the place of a stronghold. He says, first you must bind up the strong man. And I don't know if you realize this, but you, Ecclesia, have authority. And your authority gives you the ability as an ambassador of Christ to walk into every area and to declare what the word of God says. So how do I do that? You know what I do here? And nobody knows this. This is the first time anybody will ever hear this. I park my truck across the street every week on a Sunday. And you know what's the first thing I do? I speak to City Hall. I declare what the word of God says. That in this city, that this will be the place where there will be houses that we will inherit and buildings that will rise up, that where there's dryness, there will be a flow, a river of the power of God. I declare what the word of God says, and then I walk in here, and I just teach the word. When I go to meetings, before I even get out my car, I declare what the word of God says. You have to understand your authority. So I want to encourage you to remember that you have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The same sword that Jesus is referring to when he's speaking to the church of Pergamon. You have the greater one within you that is greater than he that is in the world. Listen, I don't know if you've thought about this, but you have an upper hand on Satan. Let me tell you why. Because while he may have a throne set in certain places, you are seated in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father in Christ Jesus. So he truly has been placed under your feet. The problem is this. We are compromising and dumbing down our faith. I'm sorry. Did I offend someone with the word dumb? Rise up, church. Take hold of your authority. The solution in this world is not a president. The solution in this world is not social justice efforts. The solution in this world is not a banner of unity and love that politicians falsely promise us. The solution is not the ideas of men. The solution is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The second thing I want to leave you with here. 
is that, listen, spiritual authority operates in direct proportion to spiritual intimacy. I'm going to say that again. Spiritual authority operates in direct proportion to spiritual intimacy. As the early church began to advance the gospel, it went forth powerfully with many signs and wonders. And, you know, as a result... There were a lot of people that, man, they wanted that power. They wanted, they wanted the, everything that they saw as a result of Christ, but they just didn't want Christ. They didn't want Christ. They didn't want to know Christ. They just wanted to do what they saw and experience, what they saw happening in others. And so Acts chapter 19, verses 13 through 15 tells us something about the importance of spiritual intimacy. Listen to this. It says, some Jews went around driving out evil spirits, uh, and they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. So these guys are walking around trying to invoke the name of Jesus. And they would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And one day the evil spirit answered them. He says, Jesus I know and Paul I know about. But who are you? Who are you? Listen. You cannot operate with spiritual authority without a real and personal relationship with Christ. That's where these men went wrong. And the reason why these demons knew Paul was because who Paul knew. Who Paul was pursuing. The stance that Paul had taken. Listen to Paul's words towards the latter part of his life in Philippians 3.10. You would think that this guy's arrived. I mean, he's seen much. He's accomplished much. He's established many churches. And yet he says in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. You know Paul's saying? I'm not done knowing Christ. There's more for me to know. There is no relationship as deep and as intimate as the one with Christ. And therefore, you and I will spend the rest of eternity knowing him. And so this is where many in Pergamum started to go wrong. They had an appearance of spirituality, but they were far from God. And as a result, Jesus warned them to repent. To repent. He says, repent. Can I say something to you, my friends? If you've been attempting, if you've been desiring, if you've been striving to reap the results of the authority that the Word of God promises, but not knowing Christ, not growing, not pursuing him, distracted, doing good, but is it God? Let me say this to you, my friends. Hear, hear the words of Jesus. He says, repent. He says, turn around. You're going the wrong way. And what you don't realize is that you're not following me. Isn't it interesting that the scripture says that there are those who are going to come to Christ and they're going to say, Lord, we performed great works in your name. He says, 
that in that day he will say to some of those, away from me, I never knew you. We never had anything. See, you were busy compromising. You were busy following the social norms and what, what this world calls to. You were busy moved by every wind of doctrine and every philosophy of man and everything that appeared good and everything that your peers and the, the, the majority said was right and true. It says, turn around. The last thing I want to leave you with here as we stand and come to a close is this. It's that if God hasn't surrendered his authority, neither should you. I'm going to say that again. If God has not surrendered his authority, then neither should you. Listen, it's easy to get discouraged when you see how much of an increase of godlessness and the pressures of this world come upon you. But God is still present and available to act. Let me read to you Romans 5 verse 20. It says, the law was brought in so that trespass might increase. Watch this bet where sin increased. Where darkness appears to prevail. Great grace increased all the more. Listen, while we live in a world that is governed by darkness and operates under the direction of unenlightened men and the unseen hand of the enemy, can I say to you that God's hand is not slack. Let me prove it to you. You're there. You're there. You've been placed there. You were called there. Don't run when things get tight. Don't run when your faith is challenged. No, you run to the challenge. You speak the word of God. You declare the truth. Listen to the words of Jesus in closing in John 14, 12 and 13. He says, very truly I tell you, in other words, this is the absolute truth. He says, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. Watch this. And they will do even greater things than these. Because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. I want to challenge each and every one of us here with something. Be bold with your faith. Let me ask you a question for you to consider. When was the last time you prayed for someone? Don't answer that. Answer it for yourself. When was the last time you shared the good news of Jesus? When? When was the last time you dared to declare the truth in God's word over someone and bring light into dark places? When was the last time you dared to heal the sick in the name of Jesus? When was the last time you dared to step out and be bold and not worry about if someone gets offended. The words of Jesus were spoken to the church of Pergamum in dark times. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. We're living in the days of Pergamum. And here's the question. What will you do? Will you compromise? 
or will you stand and enforce your authority? Bring the kingdom of God. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us here at Church of the Bridge today. I pray that you had a personal encounter with God, that he spoke to you powerfully, and that he met you at your place of need with this message. I also want to encourage you to go ahead and subscribe to our YouTube page. By doing so, you'll be able to check out past messages, uh, past events that we've done. You'll also be able to see what's happening now and those things that are to come. And lastly, I'd like to invite you to join with us in all that God is doing with your giving. Feel free to do so on our website. Again, thank you again for joining us, and I can't wait to connect with you next week.